0: Good afternoon. I am Lynn Rhodes, editor of the New England Quarterly, and I would like to welcome you to another episode in the NEQ-MIT ongoing series of podcasts. Today we will be hearing from Paul Friedman, author of American Restaurants and Cuisine in the Mid-19th Century. Despite our society's current fascination with Zagat ratings and celebrity chefs, the origins of American fine dining have remained largely unexplored by historians. And so I invite you to listen in as Professor Friedman of Yale University and Rebecca Fetterman of the New York Public Library discuss the food American restaurants had on offer in the Civil War era. You will also want to access Paul's essay, the appendix of which names approximately 1,000 separate dishes served at one Northeastern hotel between 1859 and 1865, a list where you will find both the familiar and the obscure heirlooms and dinosaurs.
1: My name is Rebecca Fetterman. I'm the Culinary Collections Librarian at the New York Public Library, and I'm here speaking with Paul Friedman, Professor of History at Yale University, on his article in the March 2011 issue of the New England Quarterly called American Restaurants and Cuisine in the Mid 19th Century. And Paul, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your research findings. In going over the menus in the library's collection, you've found number of dishes that are referenced quite frequently. And the most referenced dish throughout your menu research is macaroni. It's on 88% of all the Fifth Avenue hotel menus, for example. When someone mentions macaroni today, one thinks generally of elbow macaroni. Is this the shape that 19th century diners would have eaten? What is meant by macaroni, or do we even know?
2: It is elbow macaroni. It's a little surprising that macaroni should turn out to be the single most frequent item on these menus. Uh, these are very high-end restaurants, so this is not uh, intended to be uh, inexpensive or comfort food, but it's, uh, it surpasses even such uh, popular dishes as various kinds of oysters or mutton or beef. And it comes in about eight or nine ways, and it does seem to be our familiar... Elbow macaroni uh, served in various proportions and in various ways with cream, with cheese, and baked or cooked on a stove.
1: Were there any other sauces did you see in your findings? They
2: have a lot of different ways of combining these things. So sometimes it's boiled slowly uh, with milk, cream, and then cheese is added. Sometimes it's uh, cooked on the stove and then baked a little bit closer to what we would be familiar with. Sometimes uh, with meat, Mm -hmm. sometimes made as a sweet dish with puddings, although that appears as a pudding, it appears more in cookbooks than in hotel menus.
1: What other kinds of dishes did you come across the most frequently besides macaroni?
2: Well, there are a lot of oyster dishes, Mm -hmm. uh, either served um, on the half shell. All of these oyster dishes are cooked, so baked on their shells or cut up and made into patties, oyster patties, a la bechamel, very popular. Other very popular dishes include mutton, sometimes served as cutlets, sometimes chopped up and sort of made into like a hash called a haricot, French term basically arico of mutton a la bourgeoise for example is mentioned in 140 150 menus from the 5th avenue hotel apple fritters are very popular baked beans and pork uh, these are you know not incredibly elegant sounding dishes but they are american uh, dishes par excellence of the 19th century very popular on these menus
1: they're very sort of comfort food dishes, and they remind me of the kinds of foods that one would see perhaps on an elegant French restaurant menu today. But sort of the roast chicken equivalent, you know, where you go to a restaurant and there's all these unique items and then you see a roast chicken or a salmon or sort of more familiar foods. Many of the dishes, are these dishes that would have been prepared at home. I mean, these comfort foods clearly would have been prepared at home if you saw them in cookbooks of the time. Did you see many other dishes in cookbooks, or was this really was dining out really about trying new things? Well,
2: as with now, as you point out, it's both. That is, people sometimes want what uh, we consider to be comfort food or things that they could make at home, but either the restaurant perhaps makes it better, uh, you know, roast chicken or that just happens to be what they want, whether they can get that at home or not. There are almost a thousand different entrees at the Fifth Avenue hotel menus which go on uh, over a series of years and each menu each day is different. So if you look at these entrees they include very fancy dishes. Either fancy in the sense that they involve difficult to obtain or expensive game birds such as uh, reed birds, uh, prairie uh, hens, canvas ducks and uh, things like that or uh, venison or expensive because they involve turtles, terrapins, green turtles, uh, and other exotic sea creatures. Also, what the restaurants would serve that people would not make at home, or that certainly don't appear in cookbooks of the era, are things with uh, the fancier kinds of French sauces. So, sauce financière um, with uh, you know, meat distillate and truffles, or sauce Robert, which is another kind of reduction sauce, uh, meat sauce with mustard and white wine. Uh, A lot of things, sauce Robert, uh, or sauce financier, or uh, a la soubise, a la poulette, these various kinds of French preparations, these would be more uniquely restaurant items. But the basic meat served with this would be things like pork cutlets, lamb cutlets, tenderloin of beef, Uh, expensive, but not uh, overwhelmingly exotic either.
1: So you spent some time looking at the Fifth Avenue hotels, as you mentioned, and menus from the Revere House in Boston and also the American Hotel. Did you see a lot of differences in the kinds of dishes that were served at? There was obviously a bit of overlap, but were there dishes that really stood out that were different.
2: In general, the menus are very similar, okay. and I uh, found that indeed I looked at about eighty-five different restaurants across the United States between about eighteen thirty-five and eighteen sixty-five, and the menus are are pretty similar, more similar than you would expect given the different regions of the United States and the fact that technology and transport had not yet made it easy to send items across the country. There are some regional characteristics, but, you know, so that you're going to have certain kinds of fish in the Northeast, like shad. Shad is more popular in uh, New York restaurants than in Boston restaurants. On the other hand, cod seems to be more popular in Boston. But the menus are very varied and have a lot of different kinds of entrees. But the difference between, say, the Revere House and the Fifth Avenue Hotel is, um, is minimal.
1: And what about other parts of the country? This, so you looked at a few places in the South and in the Midwest as well.
2: You get more game in the Midwest at this uh, mm-hmm. at this time, and uh, sometimes they will even celebrate it. a restaurant in Fort Atkinson, Kansas. Had a kind of pioneer celebration in the eighteen uh, seventies, where they had all these uh, local game dishes, and they gave them mock French names. So you know, Wolverine, a la bourgeois, or prairie chickens, a la crapaudine. So they they make it appear. Uh, as if these are very elegant, but of course this is not meant to fool anybody. It's a kind of self-satirizing thing. So, uh, game, uh, bear. Um, in the uh, West, different kinds of fish. Uh, Dunganus crabs, sand sandabs, sole Similarly, in New Orleans, things prepared a la Creole. On the other hand, you see things a la Creole in New York mm. and in Boston as well. What they mean in New York and Boston is probably with tomatoes, celery, and onions or some sort of sauce involving those basic ingredients and probably a la Creole in New Orleans would be more authentic and a little more complicated. But uh, there are certain national kinds of tastes, even things, even a few foreign dishes or at least pseudo-foreign dishes. So that curry is very popular in New York and in Boston. The most popular kind of curry, however, is lobster curry.
1: So you mentioned a number of these uh, different kinds of fish and game and how you say sort of these menus demonstrate the essential poverty of the 21st century natural as well as culinary environment. So many of the, the ingredients you came upon in these menus is no longer available or at least easily available to diners. Which dishes of the ones you you referenced do you think um, if the ingredients were made available could make a comeback?
2: Well, uh, uh, there are a lot of duck dishes and there are all kinds of ducks, black ducks, brandt ducks, redheads, a kind of duck called a reed bird. These, Some of these are still reasonably common. So the most prized dish of the 19th century is very difficult to find. canvas ducks, but uh, duck hunters routinely uh, certainly uh, shoot mallards and uh, some of these other kinds of ducks. So you could bring a greater variety of ducks back, wild ducks back. And, and in fact, this is starting to come back a little. In general, if I had to say what... I am surprised, has not become fashionable. That's not to say that it's going to be, mm-hmm. but game. Uh, I would say that's the next frontier. You know, Now that the innards uh, <laughs> and entrails of animals uh, have a certain fashion at mm-hmm. uh, you know, Mario Batali's uh, Babo and Del Posto to start out with, but now uh, uh, spreading in all these uh, head-to-tail kinds of establishments, uh, I would have thought that game would make a comeback. So you... Uh, you heard that here first. So All ducks right. could make a comeback. Um, terrapins, turtles. I don't see that uh, becoming widely available for uh, environmental reasons. And some birds also are not likely to be very fashionable. There's some dishes for robins, uh, not uncommon, but not something that sounds yeah. <laughs> very appealing to us. Robins en crustade, for example. Or uh, robins uh, in cases, as in sort of a pastry. But uh, quails, there are all sorts of different kinds of quail dishes, a la jardiniere, encrustade with champagne sauce, larded with mushrooms. Those could certainly come back. And even uh, even if they're not wild, they're pretty tasty.
1: Most of the menus that you looked at were really from the 1830s to the end of the Civil War. But you did look at a, a few um, into the 1870s, 1880s.
2: Yes, the New York Public Library has, the, um, you know, this incredible collection of Fifth Avenue hotel menus, uh, 365 per volume, 22 volumes uh, between. Uh, 1859, when it opened, and uh, well into the 1880s. And I have not uh, analyzed every one of these volumes, but comparing uh, one of the 1880s uh, volumes, 81, 82, with the earlier ones, I'm struck by how little has changed. And this is a surprise because... Generally speaking, histories of food in the United States emphasize the ostentation, the fanciness, and the Frenchness of the Gilded Age, the period of wealth after the Civil War. So beginning in uh, the 1870s and lasting through the 1880s, you would expect that dishes would be more French, more truffles, more extravagant. I would say actually that you get that same combination of extravagant French terminology, lots of truffles indeed, but an awful lot of baked beans and pork, Mm. an awful lot of macaroni still in 1883, just as in 1859.
1: And which other, you mentioned the New York Public Library's collection. Did you consult other research institutions for their menus as uh, well?
2: Yes. Uh, the New York Public Library, in terms of quantity and particularly these runs of volumes, is unique. And uh, that has been my main uh, source. And as you who have helped me with this uh, so generously know, it, it's really an incredible resource. But beyond the New York Public Library, there's a wonderful collection at the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, and that material is mostly available on its uh, database uh, called um, American Broadsides and Ephemera. The collector Henry Voigt Mm -hmm. in Wilmington, Delaware, has assembled A marvelous collection of menus uh, from uh, the United States and his 19th century menus are both very extensive and in beautiful, really perfect condition. He's been very generous in uh, sharing that with us. State historical societies are often uh, very rich. The Minnesota State Historical Society, for example, has a lot of stuff. Uh, The um, New York Historical, the New York City Historical Society uh, here uh, has a lot of uh, early menus. California Historical Society, Bancroft Library, uh, the Culinary history collection at Johnson and Wales University in Providence, Rhode Island. So there's an awful lot of stuff. There's some famous collections that I didn't use extensively because they start a little later than Mm -hmm. 1865. So Cornell um, has a wonderful collection, but it's mostly later. Culinary Institute of America, same thing.
1: So this brings me to sort of the research process. Now you're a medieval historian. And so what really led you to doing the dining habits of 19th century America?
2: I guess a kind of hobby got out of hand. (laughs) I was always interested in food and food history, but I didn't start actually writing about it or thinking about it systematically until uh, about eight, nine years ago, when i had a fellowship at the new york public library and i had that fellowship to write a book about spices in the middle ages that project uh, a book called uh, out of the east uh, the uh, desire for spices in the middle ages was really the bridge between my interests in medieval social history and then the interest in the history of food generally because of course spices are a well-known of the Middle Ages, of upper class taste in the Middle Ages, and of medieval dining. And I was interested in why and what what about spices was so attractive. But at the same time, when I was at the public library, was the time of the menu exhibit. This would be the spring of 2003, the exhibit that um, was curated by William Grimes. And I was just so fascinated by these menus that I think that's really what inspired me most of all. Uh, some of the methods of research are similar to uh, what one does in medieval history. You know, you sort of look <laughs> for sources in odd places, you look for non-obvious things, and you certainly have a toleration for tedium yeah. <laughs> and a liking of the result and endurance of the process.
1: Going back to what you found in your research, most of these menus are, I assume, dinner menus, meaning the main meal of the day, which would have been about what, 3 to 6 p.m.? A little earlier than that? A little
2: earlier. Uh, It it varies. At the Fifth Avenue Hotel, dinner would be from uh, 2 to 4, generally.
1: And so these were all dinner menus or were any of them lunch menus or breakfast menus that you came across?
2: All, All of the menus that they save are dinner menus. There are other menus from there and from other places ...for other meals, some of which overlap dinner. So, for example, they have dinner available from 2 to 4, but they'll also have what's called a table d'hote meal served at one particular time. So, a table d'hote at 4 o'clock, so that if you wanted, the selection there might be a little less extensive but you would be assured of a meal at that particular time. That's the more old, older style sort of pre-restaurant restaurant. One of the things that distinguishes restaurants is that you can get a meal over a period of time rather than having to show up at exactly a certain hour. There are teas, suppers, lunches, uh, all of which may cut into overlap or in some sense substitute for dinner, but the well-off adults would take dinner, usually between two and four at these establishments. Servants and children were served Mm -hmm. at specified times, usually earlier.
1: But the offerings would largely be the same.
2: Oh, servants and children would get less choice.
1: Right. Speaking of choice. You know, you talk about two soups, two fish, a half a dozen or so boiled dishes, et cetera, et cetera. Were people supposed to eat as much food as as is listed on these menus? How was it served? Was it given sort of a buffet style? Um, Were they given a, you know, could they choose what sort of roast they wanted to eat?
2: You know, this is not all that easy to determine in detail for any single establishment. But the general principles, I guess, are these. Uh, The first is... They, they did eat more than we do. Um, they certainly were willing to put away gigantic breakfasts and then sit down to this um, multi-course, eight-course meal and. You know, why is that? Were they fatter? Did they exercise more? They certainly weren't that much bigger or bigger at all. I'm not sure I have a good physiological answer for that. Mm -hmm. They certainly ate more and ate with a lot of gusto and don't seem to have had an awful lot of guilt about that. Partly, of course, body image was... Different and plumpness was fine, even though these menus make it look as if you'd be more than merely plump if you if you consumed everything. The next thing is that, no, they don't consume everything. You know, the Fifth Avenue Hotel has from 8 to 12 entrees. You had your choice of these. And uh, it's not a buffet. It's uh, served by waiters. There's a big uh, ratio of staff to customers. And the waiters moved kind of in military precision and would serve dishes, cut them up. Uh, You could request specific entrees, but a little bit like a cruise ship or a wedding party, you could, if you wanted, have uh, almost everything. You know how now we have buffets and stations. You know, so if you want sushi and pasta and omelets and pancakes and whatever at Uh, Some of these hotel brunches or resort extravaganzas, you can have that if uh, for some reason that suits your mood. Similarly with these meals. So they would be served in courses. You had only maybe eight to ten minutes per course. Waiters uh, moved you through. And indeed, foreigners particularly comment on the extravagant amounts of food served in the United States, which is the same as now. And the incredible rapidity with which these meals were consumed. Not a lot of conversation.
1: And these were largely at hotels. I th- actually, I think, all of almost all of the menus you consulted yeah, were from are hotels. there were some
2: famous freestanding restaurants at this right. time. Delmonico's, probably the most famous restaurant in the United States in New York, or Antoine's in New Orleans. But uh, the uh, establishments for fine dining tended to be hotels. That's right.
1: And this would have been under the American plan?
2: Yes, you. Or the, the so-called American plan was uh, where you got your meal and your hotel room for a set price. So these menus don't have prices. Not only do they not have prices for individual dishes because you sort of got everything you wanted – Uh, But they don't have an overall price for the menu as a whole. We know from the accounts of travelers that the prices ranged from $1 to $3, Mm -hmm. which is a not insubstantial amount in, uh, say, 1860, but is not out of reach of all but a very tiny minority. In other words, sort of the same kinds of people who go to reasonably nice restaurants now, a minority but a very significant number, would be similar in that era.
1: And you mentioned children and servants eating a little earlier. Um, and you also talk about this a dinner at the St. Nicholas Hotel in 1853 where men and women dined together, which was apparently fairly unusual. Did you notice a difference in the food offerings of ladies' menus versus gentlemen's venues?
2: Yeah, the the standard was to have a ladies restaurant and a men's restaurant. And generally, if a man and woman were uh, a married couple or accompanying each other, the dinner would be taken in the ladies restaurant, men's restaurant being thought to be too rough to course for women to be in. The mingling of the sexes, however, was never really unusual and it became more common as the century wore on. The Fifth Avenue Hotel seems to have had uh, men and women dining together Uh, right from the start, that is from 1859. But where you have a ladies' restaurant, so-called ladies' ordinary, there's nothing that you can discern that distinguishes Mm -hmm. it from the men's. They have the same uh, kidneys sautéed with uh, port wine sauce, the same calves' head and brain sauce, the same roasts, the same lamb cutlets, uh, the same pig's feet, all sorts of things that we would not think of as feminine food. It is the case, however, that as early as the 1850s, there are establishments, particularly ice cream parlors, that were thought to be for women or were set up for women as places to go, uh, relaxation from shopping, for example, so that the association of women with ice cream is perhaps the first, you know, chicken salad with sauce on the side Mm -hmm. kind of ladies dining.
1: Um And… We mentioned before that most of these are hotel menus. Did you, in your research, come across sort of tavern menus or more freestanding but less high-end restaurants from the same time period? Or are those hard to find?
2: Those are a little harder to find. They're sort of not the sort of things that people save as souvenirs. Mm -hmm. But, yes, we have them. Uh, Sometimes they have separate prices. They are not radically different. They'll have some of the same kinds of dishes, at least of the more modest type. They'll have uh, baked beans and pork. They'll have uh, turkey hash with eggs and things like that. They'll even have terrapin, a sort of special order. And in, in one case from the 1860s, the terrapin costs a dollar, which uh, is uh, three times what almost any other item on the menu costs. Kicken is also relatively expensive at that time.
1: And did you keep track of the wines that were served? I mean, what kinds of beverages would be served? I mean, Madeira accompanying some of the dishes. But did you, in your research, did you mark down also what was being served?
2: Uh, the wines are usually listed on a separate page, and they do have separate prices. And then as now, you could spend way more on wine than on the dinner. So the most expensive wines, particularly in the... Um, 1840s, 1850s, are Madeira. Mm-hmm. Uh, Madeira is a, is a wine that was very popular in the United States in part because it improves with transport, unlike most mm. uh, wines or even most edible products. It likes being shaken around, and indeed, uh, prized Madeiras were those that had been, say, around Cape Horn or some really rough, stormy area, so the wine in the casks was sort of shaken. Madeira also is very, very durable. You could drink Madeira that was 100 years old then as now. Americans eventually lost the taste for Madeira by the end of the 19th century. The other very expensive kind of wines are German white wines, a Hock, as they were then called, Rhine wines, Schloss Johannesberger, which is still one of the great white wines of the Rhine. These wines would go for maybe $4. Mm. Uh, the most expensive Madeira, I think that I've seen are 12 or $13. In other words, from uh, Five to 10 times the price of the meal. But again, if you uh, wanted a uh, 1961 Petrus or a 1982 uh, Romane Conti, you would be paying in the tens of thousands of dollars for that. And no meal, at least to my knowledge, in the United States in terms of just food, uh, is going to come anywhere near that.
1: So do you plan to continue your research on this project? go further into the Gilded Age and continue doing?
2: I'd like to. I'd like to do more with the remaining Fifth Avenue hotel menus Mm -hmm. at the New York Public Library. There are so many of them. And if I could analyze the data from All 22 of them, I think I'd have something interesting (laughs) to say about American dining habits. Uh, I'd like also to continue looking at different parts of the country. I made a uh, start at that, but uh, the decentralization of historical collections and archives Mm -hmm. is such that I think there's some interesting things to find. I'd like particularly to learn more about New Orleans in the 19th century because then, as now, it's a really distinctive and wonderful cuisine. There aren't a whole lot of menus that survive, but I think one could use other sources such as travelers' descriptions. Ideally, I'd like to get a sense of dining in, say, Boston, New York, San Francisco, New Orleans, Chicago, the major gastronomic centers uh, throughout the 19th century and see how much, how much they differed uh, and how much uh, their,
1: their tastes were similar. Great. Well, thank you so much for, for talking Thanks today. Thanks
2: for this opportunity. I enjoy and it. And
1: I look forward to seeing you in the rare books division again to look mm-hmm. at more menus. I'll be there. All right. Thanks, Paul. This has been an MIT Press Journals podcast. For more information on the New England Quarterly or any of our publications, please visit our website at www.mitpressjournals.org.